Hello and welcome to the Friday, September 25th, 2020, five weeks and counting edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, the court, the polls, Iowa 2, and your post-election reading list. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper Statehouse Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up, the court. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is lying in state in the U.S. Capitol today as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and others are planning how to replace her. Like any Supreme Court vacancy in at least the last uh, quarter century, the vacancy has led to intense political activity from all sides. Um, It's great for fundraising. McConnell appears to have taken uh, damn the torpedoes approach to filling the vacancy, saying he wants a vote on President Trump's nominee, apparently being announced this weekend. Uh, He wants a vote before the November 3rd election. We're hearing lots of noise about the Thurman rule, the Biden rule, the Grassley rule, and everything but the Golden rule. And despite the cooler temperatures, there's been a run on flip flops. <laughs> Todd, um, just another day in Washington. Yeah, in that every day in Washington things seem to get worse. So I, I guess that's, you know, is another day in Washington. Uh, I mean, of course, the big debate uh, is is you know currently over, you know, the fact that uh, Republicans refused to handle Merrick Garland's nomination in Obama's final year in office, saying that it was improper to, to fill a, a court vacancy with, with an election approaching. Well, now we're, what, uh, barely more than a month from the election, and the, and the Senate, same Senate Republicans who wouldn't, uh, wouldn't take up the Garland nomination are going to ram through a, a nomination by President Trump, and that's left a lot of Democrats saying, you know, you talked about damn the torpedoes, they're saying damn Mitch McConnell, which they have said (laughs) over and over again for years. Uh, But, you know, there's going to be a a vote. There's there's some speculation on how the process is going to work, whether there are actually going to be hearings or they're going to be shortened or, uh, but they're going to move with remarkable speed to give conservatives a pretty decisive 6-3 6-3 vote on the court. So, yeah, another day in Washington. Yeah, it, it, it sort of appears that McConnell has come to a conclusion, um, or at least it makes you think that perhaps he's come to the conclusion that the White House is lost, that Biden is going to win this election. And he may be losing his Senate majority as well, so he's betting that his legacy will be a Supreme Court and federal judiciary that will ensure conservative philosophy for the next three decades or longer. Um, who is helped more by a Supreme Court fight in the final weeks of the campaign, uh, assuming they have hearings um, and floor debate on this? Does it mobilize the Trump base more than it fires up uh, Democrats who might have been lukewarm about Biden? Well, if you look at the polls, we're seeing uh, pretty large gender gaps with with women supporting Biden and and men tending to support uh, uh, Donald Trump, and I, I, given given the uh, the sort of the central status 
of abortion rights and other civil rights uh, issues that, that affect women, I think you know this development is certainly not going to narrow those gender gaps. If anything, it, it solidifies them and widens them. And that, that leads into the whole concern among Republicans about getting back some of those suburban voters that they maybe had in 2016 and then lost in 2018. I don't think ramming through a conservative justice is going to bring any of those folks back. So I, I think net it's a net gain for Biden in that any effort by the by Republicans to portray themselves as you know Joni Ernst has been advertising herself lately as bipartisan in her Senate race. I don't think a lot of folks are going to believe that when they you know run the run the Senate this way. Aaron, uh, one of the big questions about the Republicans' plans for filling this vacancy is the impact on the election. Um, not only on the presidential race, but the U.S. Senate race here in Iowa. Uh, as Todd just mentioned, Joni Ernst is up for re-election. The, the latest polls uh, were in the field in the days immediately following uh, Justice Ginsburg's death. Any indication that the looming confirmation fight had impact on voters' opinions, that it influenced their them one way or another? Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting in the Monmouth poll, uh, they asked that question exactly, and, and it was a largely a, a, a partisan split. You know, if, you, if you're supporting Ernst, you're fine with them filling the seat. If you're supporting Greenfield, you, you disapprove of them filling the seat. Uh, what was interesting is uh, for uh, Senate voters here in Iowa that are either soft in their support of one candidate or the other or remain undecided, by a 10-point margin, they disapprove of Republicans moving quickly to fill that seat before the election. So that's noteworthy, but but also merits the caveat that they also didn't ask, is this a motivating issue for you as far as casting your vote? So, so that we have to note that that's two different things. So there is that 10-point margin among undecideds that they would prefer the, the seat be filled after the election, but we don't know if that's a motivating factor for those undecided voters to cast their vote. I mean, it's certainly not great news uh, for Senate Republican candidates like Joan Ernst, um, but it's not necessarily damning evidence either. It, all, it was also interesting. I, I just got back from a, an event with Senator Ernst kicking off her uh, campaign uh, bus tour. Um, and I asked her that this exact question, you know, setting aside the, the procedural debate do you have any concern that there will be a political cost to pay for this? Um, and her answer was interesting, and I, I'll have to paraphrase here, but it, but it, it, she didn't outright refute that possibility. Um, I, I don't want to say put words in her mouth and say she's consigned to it hurting her cause, but but she certainly didn't give a full-throated rejection of the idea that this will hurt candidates uh, like herself. Uh, so it was interesting. Aaron, let's stay with you and talk about polls. In the past uh, week, we've seen polls from Des Moines Register, from Monmouth that you mentioned in the New York Times, uh, on the presidential race and the Senate race here in Iowa. Uh, what did we learn from these results? Did these uh, so-called snapshots in time uh, show the same picture, show the same outcomes in these races? Yeah, it was an interesting week. If for no other reason than we finally got a, a nice little uh, flow of polling here in Iowa, it, it had been pretty quiet on the polling front uh, here, and we got three really good polls from really, really reputable pollsters in uh, the Iowa poll, 
uh, Monmouth, as we just mentioned, and then New York Times, uh, Siena College. Um, so it was great to, to, to just get that information in general, regardless of what it said. Um, uh, two, two things to note, the Senate race was remarkably consistent across those three polls, and they all showed Teresa Greenfield uh, leading Joni Ernst by small margins, ranging from one to three points, um, but they all showed Greenfield in the lead. Um, so, so the consistency there uh, was certainly noteworthy across those three polls. So a close race, as we've all expected, um, and, and according to, again, that snapshot in time right now, it, it would appear that Teresa Greenfield has a small edge. Um, the presidential race was, was a little different. It, um, uh, that one kind of went all over the map. So you had Monmouth that showed Donald Trump with a three-point lead. You had New York Times that showed Joe Biden with a three-point lead. And then Bless and Selzer in the register poll, they came right down the middle and showed Trump and Biden in a literal deadlock at 47%. So, so we kind of got a little both. And I guess if you look at those as a whole, the thing you come away with is that one's very much up for grabs here in Iowa. Um, and, and it's certainly close and we don't have a real good sense of who's ahead at this moment. So it's probably safe to say that these races are competitive. That's if you want to put the one big picture headline that applies to all of it uh, is yes, we've got two really close, really competitive races here in Iowa at the top of the ticket. Tom, one of the questions I have looking at the election this year is what will happen in those Mississippi River counties that went for Obama twice and then backed Trump in 2016. And you've recently moved downriver from Dubuque to the Quad Cities. And I, I just wonder, what's your take on these folks? Do they stick with Trump in 2020? Or, or do they um, go back to voting Democrat, Democratic and support Joe Biden? Uh, so I spoke to uh, the director of the Loris College poll in Dubuque for kind of some thoughts and perspectives. And if you look at the map, every county that borders the Mississippi River, except for Scott County, uh, went for Trump in 2016. Scott County is the only one that, uh, that didn't pivot. Um, and since then, Republicans have narrowed the gap in party registration in almost all of those counties, except for Scott County and Muscatine County to, to some extent. So the advantage Democrats had in these places has de decreased. And uh, voters in these counties registering as no party uh, also has decreased as, as a percentage. So that's kind of one way to predict if there's a political shift going on or if 2016 was, was a one-off. Um, you know, in general, partisans are not going to deviate from the party and will overwhelmingly support the, the party candidate. Um, that said, Dubuque and Scott counties are places where Democrats can say that they're still doing well with registration totals, even though Republicans have kind of narrowed that gap. Um, and some of the GOP's biggest gains are in rural counties with the smallest populations. Um, so if, if Democrats can expand success in Scott County, um, that would make up for GOP success in, in these other counties, because a lot of these counties don't have a lot of voters like Allen McKee County in, in, in the, the northeast part of the state. Um, the benefit for Biden in these counties is he's still perceived as a moderate or centrist, even though the party as a whole is moving to the left. Uh, and Democrats down ballot are doing well in the congressional races, uh, both in the, the first district race and, and, and the second district race. And, um, you know, Teresa Greenfield is holding her own against Joni Ernst. Um, you know, statewide, the vote for U.S. Senate and the president, you know, tend to go in the same direction. 
Um, and more and more, that's true with the direction of a congressional district outcome and the, and the presidential outcome for that district. People don't split the ticket a whole lot. So um, that sets us up for a nail biter. Um, uh, another thing is Joe Biden is, is doing a better job of holding together the Obama coalition than Hillary Clinton did. But uh, he's, he's still not commanding that electorate the way that Obama did. Interesting. Interesting to take, take on that. Um, Brett, uh, one of the other things that I found fascinating in the my literature poll was that on the generic ballot, um, the generic Republican led the generic Democrat by just five percentage points in the fourth district. Does it feel that close over there? Yeah, it was that was a very surprising outcome. I, I agree. Um, I have to say I don't have a great feel, James. Um, there, there's just so few public events. Um, I don't have a strong gauge on that. Um, I mean the. That that's one of the impacts of coronavirus. But I mean, the expectation, of course, and the you know conventional wisdom would be that you know once Steve King lost that primary to, to um, Randy Feenstra, that Feenstra then had a you know a very you know the the seat was almost immediately I think that evening or the next morning in June it was moved to you know, solid Republican and that Feenstra would have a you know an easy time with J D. Scholten, um, who only lost to King by three percent. So I know that five percent was surprising. Um, you know, the, the, I, I did speak with both, uh, both candidates, Scholten and Feenstra, just on Tuesday. I did a piece that was on the state of the race <clears throat> as we sit six weeks out at that point. And, um, you know, so they are ramping up some more in-person type campaigning. Um, Feenstra, or, I'm sorry, Scholten is holding these parking lot rallies where he goes to a larger um, place and then people can drive up and listen via radio to his, his kind of rally speech and they can text in questions. Um, so that's an interesting format. Um, and he's definitely trying to hit, he, he vows that he will reach not just all the counties, but he's going to hit all 300 and so like around 350 towns in the 39 counties here um, by October. And then Feenster for his part, he's, um, he's doing a lot of, um, he's touring businesses. And he said that some of the, a few of the county GOP organizations are starting to have in person as well so he's doing some of that so you know one thing that could one thing that could accrue to to Scholten is he keeps he's kind of keeping it to I don't know pocketbook or household type issues um that would be maybe more moderate that might speak to people in the fourth district um it's like access to health care and he talks a lot about the, the commodity prices and the, the tariffs of, of how the Trump tariffs have hurt farmers so you know Maybe there's an opening. You know, it would seem very surprising. Um, one other stat to throw out there is um, the, I looked at the voter registration total, and it's it just it's just a, a yawning gap for Republicans. It's more than seventy thousand. So it, it would be you know, very surprising if, if Shelton would pull that off. But um, that that generic ballot, who knows? <laughs> I guess. Brett, over on this side of the state, we're seeing a lot of activity by um, Democratic aligned groups like the Democratic. Uh, um, mm -hmm. campaign, the DCCC, and, and groups like that. Uh, are they as active uh, over there in the 4th District as they were two years ago? No. Or... <laughs> no. In fact, that's um, how I started writing the story, uh, just to kind of go back to, <laughs> to, to my approach to, to wanting to write the story, was I started, my uh, presumption was that um, at, at this point, two years ago, there was lots of things were happening. There was breaking news uh, a couple times a week here at this time uh, in 2018, where Steve King was um, having all these uh, overtures or uh, tweets or whatever of, of positive um, 
impressions of the of these far right candidates in Europe, and and that was really coming back to haunt him. And, and that was when the, the National Republican that Steve Stiver yanked the funding, and that's when all the you know the last six, five, six, seven weeks, all that money was flooding to Schulten. And my my premise was that this, that's not happening this time. Um, Schulten says. Um, he absolutely will have a very strong um, fundraising quarter, even stronger than than what he had for the second quarter. Okay, that's very interesting. I guess we'll have to stay tuned and see how that helps him in, in the election. Um, moving back uh, to, to the second district um, in sort of southeast Iowa, including Scott County and Johnson County. Tom, uh, Thursday night, the, the candidates there debated Rita Hart, the Democrat, and Marionette Miller-Meeks, the Republican. Um, it was the first of, what, three or four debates. Um, what was the highlight? Uh, or were, was there any highlight from, from this debate? Uh, what did you take away from it? Um, well, we learned that uh, Rita Hart uh, supports a federal mass mandate in, in raising the federal minimum wage. Uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks, much like Governor Kim Reynolds, supports and encourages the wearing of masks, but feels it shouldn't be a government mandate. As for the minimum wage, uh, Miller-Meeks feels that uh, should be set by individual states and is meant to be entry level and, and not meant to be a wage that's uh, to, to support a family. Um, she says she's open to discussing the, the issue, but says she has concerns that it, you know, doesn't look at disparities in cost of living from state to state and the potential harm it could cause for, for small businesses and their ability to hire and retain workers. Um, we learned that both support the science behind climate change, you know, recognize it as something that, that, that's real and, and needs to be addressed. Um, both also support comprehensive immigration reform that provides a faster pathway to citizenship while providing border security and, and proper vetting and, and reforms, um, the guest worker visa to help employers meet their labor needs. Um, we learned that Miller Meeks doesn't support student debt forgiveness, asking how do you do it fairly um, and arguing that it may push students to go to college when that might not be the career path for them and it may discourage students from considering trade schools or, or vocational training. Um, on social security, both expressed support for a bipartisan fix to ensure uh, the system remains solvent. Uh, Miller Meeks said a variety of options should be considered and wouldn't rule out raising the retirement age and uh, means testing that would look at the annual income of beneficiaries and determine based on that income whether they'd receive a reduced benefit check or, or no benefit check at all. Um, Rita Hart was pretty clear that she opposes raising the retirement age, but um, expressed support for, for starting to charge Social Security taxes on on all earnings, uh, the maximum amount of earnings subject to the to the tax increase from uh, about 133,000 last year to about 138,000 in, in 2020. Um, it, it sounds like they covered the whole waterfront, uh, but really didn't break any new ground, did they? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And Aaron, you were ringside there at the debate. Uh, I saw a news release from the Heart campaign that she decisively won the debate. Um, what's your take? Did anybody uh, land a punch? Was there a yeah, winner? I saw, those, I saw the same one from the Iowa GOP that uh, they called it the other way, if, if you can believe that. <laughs> Imagine. Um, um, you know, I, I think uh, Tom did a good job of highlighting the issues. Maybe what struck me was, and perhaps this is a product of the district in, in, that they're running in, um, as we talked about at the open of the debate, it's a district that has been represented by a Democrat, but 
last uh, four years ago, last presidential election, the Republican candidate Donald Trump won it. Um, so more so in, in a lot of debates, you'll see there was some um, discussion that um, featured, if not common ground, at least, um, you know, a more um, moderate discussion of, of, of the issues. And, and Tom mentioned a few that jumped out to me too, uh, immigration, um, climate policy, climate change, um, health, even on healthcare, um, uh, Mary Miller-Meeks wasn't um, as, um, you know, adamant about um, uh, ripping apart the Affordable Care Act as, as you'll often hear from Republican uh, candidates. So um, it was interesting to, at times, hear, hear both candidates uh, kind of take a, take a moderate tone. And like I said, maybe that's a product of uh, district they're in and the, and the type of voters uh, that they're trying to reach. Yeah. Um, throw this out to both you and Tom. Um, based on what you saw last night, what should we expect in the next debates? Will it be more of the same or do you think there'll be, there'll be sharp, sharper exchanges? I'll, I'll just say real quick uh, to, to kind of dovetail off of what I just said, I would assume at some point the candidates will feel like they have to do something to draw uh, contrasts uh, with each other. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know that there was a ton of that last night. Um, so maybe we'll see a little bit more of that um, in the next debate. Exactly what shape that that takes and to what extent they, they choose to do that, um, I, I don't necessarily have a sense. But I, but I would assume that um, – and they're, uh, by all measurements that we have anyways, in a close race there too. So I would assume at some point um, those two candidates would feel like they need to find ways to, to draw a contrast between each other. I would, yeah, yeah I, would, I would agree with that. You know, what we didn't see in this debate um, that we've seen in, in ads, predominantly in the, the Iowa Senate race, is, you know, candidates trying to tie the other to the extreme right or left of the party. Um, I, I expect maybe we, we might see some of that um, in the next debates, as Aaron said, as they try and do a better job of drawing contrasts between themselves. Um, I don't know. I, there wasn't much back and forth, back and forth, excuse me, not, not really many jabs thrown. I, I expect maybe going forward, we'll see more of an effort to try and maybe tie the other candidate to their party's presidential nominee and unpopular positions they've taken and, and maybe see some more jabs thrown and, and again, try and draw some sharper contrasts and hopefully kind of make a better case for, for why their ideas for the district are, are, are better for Iowans. Again, they both really kind of took moderate middle of the road stances and, and, you know, neither really got all that fired up. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that struck me is uh, that even with the format they were in last night with the, the, the plexiglass shields between each participant in this debate, um, there was some, they did sort of look at each other from time to time. And, and you know, one of the things that I remember from debates with uh, Congressman Loebsack is he, he wouldn't even look at his opponent. He would just <laughs> totally ignore their presence. I mean, he went as if he wasn't going to acknowledge that they were even there. Brett, um, you know, we've talked before on the podcast about what 4th District Representative Steve King has been doing with his free time now that he has no committee assignments. Uh, apparently, he's been putting it to good use, writing a book to review the culture since the 1970s. Um, 
makes me wonder what Steve King was like in the 1970s. Um, <laughs> but he's titled the book Walking Through Fire. Tell us more about that. Right. And just for a little context, this was, um, we've been trying to talk to Congressman King since the primary loss, and that has not happened for several months. So this was my first time that I was able to talk to him. He was actually at a, a ribbon cutting for an event in Sioux City, and he was um, good enough to speak with me after that. And and that's when this came up. I, we just kind of talked, you know, I asked questions about what, what does the future hold? And he, I was surprise, I guess I will say, to find out that he's writing a book, Walk, Walking Through the Fire. Um, he said that, that the title is from uh, something that Andrew Breitbart had told him, um, that when people give him criticism, that he should you know, basically keep on keeping on and, and, and walk to the fire. But for what Congressman King said, he wasn't able to just stop there to walk to the fire. He had to walk through the fire. So um, he, he didn't mind, you know, doesn't mind taking all the hits and all the barbs and everything that comes with being an outspoken conservative. So um, that's what, why he titled the book that way. And he, um, as you said, it will be kind of review. Uh, like I asked, what would it be about your time in Congress? And he said, no, it's more kind of a societal look at where society has come from the time that he started his, um, he was a, um, um, his construction company out here in Cairo and Iowa um, from that time. That was when he was listening to a lot of radio and, and coming to you know, watch the culture and, you know, as a young man and, and becoming you know, more of an adult life, I guess, you know, with the job and all that sort of thing and um, picking up his, where he, where he stood politically and then just kind of reviewing culture. And he, he did say that it's a, a chunk of the book um, will cover the loss of his committees in revisiting um, that, what he's described as a hit for like an orchestrated hit for how the New York times article came out and, and um, just all, all of what happened basically over the last about two years ago. So, Aaron, uh, should we expect that Congressman King will um, make the, the rounds uh, a book tour sort of uh, hitting Fox News, but the late night talk shows with Colbert, Kimmel, others to hype his book? <laughs> well, as far as the late night shows, that seems a little less likely um, uh, given the... Uh, divergent political ideologies of, of those hosts and, and the former congressman. Uh, it would not be in the least bit exciting to see uh, him pop up on uh, Fox News uh, uh, or maybe even OAN, uh, if I got that one uh, right. Uh, I, I kind of get a kick out of it, the, the way Brett told that story. I, maybe he will go on those late night talk, talk shows because it does sort of have a Hollywood feel in that uh, he tried for months to get an interview with the guy, but he wouldn't agree to it until he had a book to sell. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Brett, uh, one of the other things we've talked about is that uh, his future might include, uh, you know, being a commentator on talk TV on Fox, for example, but uh, Congressman King, King seemed to throw cold water on that. Right. Yeah, he, he joked that he, he isn't good looking enough to, to do that. But I don't I don't know that anyone would be overly surprised if he does become, you know, at least a periodic uh, type commentator for, for Fox News. Sure, sure. Todd, uh, how many copies have you pre-ordered? Uh, well, you know, looking ahead to the holidays, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking that maybe this would be a, a great stocking stuffer for everyone. Uh, when I saw the title, Walking Through the Fire, I thought maybe it should be Walking through the fire on cantaloupe calves. 
Ooh. Maybe that would have been a maybe that would have been a little little more on point, or maybe just a a a totally white book jacket that says supremacy on the cover might have also been a little more appropriate. But I'm no I'm no publishing expert, so I don't know exactly how these things are worked out. But but yes, I I will be interested to read it. I'm sure he'll be uh, it'll be a world's record for all the axes being grind grinded in that book. <laughs> As we've, got, as we've talked, I, revenge. Yeah. as we've talked, I, this occurred to me that he might want to somehow indicate through the, you know, the, the artwork or whatever, that it's a politics book. Cause some, some person that, you know, like these fire, you know, people that want to walk through fire, um, like maybe they, they were looking for a tutorial on how to walk, you know, to, to toughen up your feet and, and grin and bear it and walk through fire. Like like Pam Beasley on The Office did that one time, but um, so, so there might there might be some mistaken readers who unless he, you know, this is powerful. Well, it, it it might be a twelve step kind of book anyway. Twelve steps to getting booted out of Congress. Uh, it didn't take him twelve steps though. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it took a, anyway. That's many it. years anyway. Yeah, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope it was worth your time. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. Send fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. And you can find us on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Austin Taft will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Brett, Aaron, Tom, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Stay well. a stowaway when life refuses to cooperate I balance the equilibrium and attempt to gain an understanding of my current situation